Good morning, everybody. My name's Isaac Fott, and I'm going to be reading out of Daniel chapter 3. King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold 90 feet high and 9 feet wide and set it on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. He then summoned the satraps, prefects, governors, advisors, treasurers, judges, and magistrates, and all the other provincial officials to come to the dedication of the image he had set up. So the satraps, prefects, governors, advisors, treasurers, judges, magistrates, and all the other provincial officials assembled for the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up, and they stood before it. Then the herald loudly proclaimed, this is what you are commanded to do. O peoples, nations, and men of every language, as soon as you hear the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, pipes, and all kinds of music, you must fall down and worship the image of gold that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Whoever does not fall down and worship will immediately be thrown into a blazing furnace. Therefore, as soon as they heard the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, and all kinds of music, all the people, nations, and men of every language fell down and worshipped the image of gold that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. At this time, some astrologers came forward and denounced the Jews. They said to King Nebuchadnezzar, O king, live forever. You have issued a decree, O king, that everyone who hears the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, and pipes, and all kinds of music must fall down and worship the image of gold, and that whoever does not fall down and worship will be thrown into a blazing furnace. But there are some Jews whom you have set over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They neither serve your gods nor worship the image of gold you have set up. Furious with rage, Nebuchadnezzar summoned Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So these men were brought before the king, and Nebuchadnezzar said to them, as is, is, it, is it true, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the image of gold I have set up? Now when you hear the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, pipes, and all kind of music, if you are ready to fall down and worship the image I made, very good. But if you do not worship it, you will be thrown immediately into a blazing furnace. Then what god will be able to rescue you from my hand? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to save us from it, and he will rescue us from your hand, O king. But even if he does not, we want you to know, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold you have set up. Then Nebuchadnezzar was furious with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and his attitude toward them changed. He ordered the furnace heated seven times hotter than usual and commanded some of the strongest soldiers in his army to tie up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and throw them into the blazing furnace. So these men wore their robes, trousers, turbans, and other clothes were bound and thrown into the blazing furnace. The king's command was so urgent and the furnace so hot that the flames of the fire killed the soldiers who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And these three men, firmly tied, fell into the blazing furnace. Then King Nebuchadnezzar leaped to his feet in amazement and asked his advisors, Weren't there three men that we tied up and threw into the fire? They replied, Certainly, O Lord, O king. He said, Look, I see four men walking around in the fire, unbound and unharmed. And the fourth looks like a son of God, the gods. Nebuchadnezzar then approached the opening of the blazing furnace and shouted, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come, out, oh, come here. So Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out of the fire, and the satraps, prefects, governors, and royal advisors crowded around them. They saw that the fire had not harmed their bodies, nor was the hair of their, uh, their heads singed. Their robes were not scorched, and there was no smell of fire on them. The Nebuchadnezzar said, Praise be to the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and rescued his servants. They trusted in him and defied the king's command and were willing to give up their lives rather than serve or worship any god except their own god. Therefore, I decree that the people of any language or language who say anything against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be cut into pieces and their houses be turned into piles of rubble, for no other god can save in this way. Then the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the province of Babylon. Great job, Isaac. Great work. We're going to be looking at um, Daniel chapter 3, verses 1 through 30 
for the next couple of weeks. And so he did a great job of just laying that out for us. Walking down the hallway, coming up here, he said, man, there's a lot of repetition in that passage. And um, Daniel goes out of his way um, to just to list all the musical instrumentation, which is interesting because all those instruments um, were multicultural. It's a multicultural list. They weren't just typically exclusively Babylonian instruments. They were from all over the world. Uh, and so uh, you can see this guy just assemble this um, royal orchestra because he's determined that Nebuchadnezzar, that is, he's determined to make a name for himself. And so we're going to be looking at that, probably more focused on that part of it next week. Um, but he was so, and Daniel seems to, uh, with a little sarcastic um, dipping of the pen in the ink of sarcasm, makes, kind of makes fun of all this, the emphasis of these musical instruments because he's just trying, to, he's trying so hard to make a name for himself and to leave a legacy. It's interesting because when we talked about this um, a couple of weeks ago, of course, Nebuchadnezzar had a dream and Daniel interpreted the dream, not only told him what the dream was, but what he saw in the dream and what the dream meant. And it's interesting that the Babylonian Empire was the head of gold. And then you see other empires that come along, the silver and the bronze and the iron and the iron and the clay mix. And so we see that Nebuchadnezzar just tries to, he, he takes off on this. And uh, instead of just a head of gold, he's going to make a whole image of gold about 90 feet tall and 9 feet wide. That's kind of interesting. We'll look at that a little more in that part of the passage, like I said, next week. This week, I want to kind of focus on the latter half of Daniel chapter 3 because I think it really strikes at the heart of what's trying to be conveyed to us here. And that is that um, it's so important when we live in a hostile culture like Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. If you're a VeggieTale uh, follower or watcher, Rock, Shack, and Benny, all right, that's who's our, in our text today. And uh, these guys were living in a hostile culture. They were living in a, a time and a place where their viewpoint was marginalized and pluralistic viewpoints were being uh, proposed. And certainly Nebuchadnezzar was, was had himself as the focal point of uh, this image and, and what he was asking the people to do. So that's kind of where we're going to go today and uh, I'll say just a little bit more about that. But first of all, before we launch completely into that, I want to say from the bottom of my heart, thank you for what you did last weekend. You made this place just hum with activity, with excitement and joy. Um, you attended. Um, the, the, the food services team came together and offered some great breakfast items and a great lunch. And the setup teams, thank you so much. The elders and the staff jumping in. And you were engaged. You were here filling the tables. And you stayed with it. And if you had to leave, well, then you had an opportunity to go back and watch some of the videos um, that Russ Miller was able to, to, we were able to restream. Thank you, technological team as well, for streaming this stuff and making it available to people. And those watches and views, uh, view count lists on those things are just going up. And we just are so thankful because we've given you good standing and put you in a good position before the, some of the challenges ever get your way, come your way, post, uh, post high school and college and so on. So I'm just so encouraged by that. We are making intentional strides toward becoming a biblical worldview church. And I praise God for that. And it starts with creation. You know, I talked to you last week about how Russ Miller is like the ultimate Jenga guru, right? And so um, you ever played this game, Jenga? Yes, I've played this game, Jenga, and some of you have too. And you know what? I think that one's too tight. I'm going to go for this one. Okay, see, that's the way you play Jenga. And just like last week, our speaker came, and uh, he talked to us about just piece by piece um, these essential points to consider and think about when you think about creation from a biblical worldview perspective. He talked about the evidence of a global flood and how there's seashells on top of some of our highest mountains. How'd they get there? Well, when the fountains of the deep broke up, 
They were, these mountains were vaulted, uh, uh, earth and tectonic plates crashing together, vaulted these mountains up. And so it's not as if the world, uh, there had to be enough water to cover Mount Everest because M- Mount Everest wasn't there yet. And so uh, there was water that covered a, a global flood that covered and these cataclysmic scarring events of the global flood uh, showed to us that uh, there's evidence of the global flood with seashells and, and aquatic life, evidence of that up on top of these mountains. Well, how did they get there? The global flood. He talked to us about that. He talked to us about uh, uniformity, and that's kind of a big word, but the speed of light. And you know, I talked to somebody just a few weeks ago. They're one of their biggest arguments for what we would call just a secular worldview of our origins is tied to the speed of light and how that these planetary formations and Milky Ways and galaxies are so far away. It takes millions of years for that light to reach us. And I thought it was really interesting last week when Russ talked about uh, how the speed of light has been manipulated by scientists in laboratories, how that they've actually slowed the speed of light brought it to a stop, and then also how that they were able to speed it up, making it faster than, the, what, the 186,000 miles per, per second kind of deal. And so it's interesting how that scientists can do that in the laboratory. Do you think that maybe God can do that in the world and the universe he's made? That he can slow down or speed up per the creationary needs, and that day one light was there, and by day six it's all in place? If scientists can manipulate the speed of light, why can't God manipulate the speed of light? And so just piece by piece, he just begins to dismantle this whole secular worldview argument. Fallible dating methods, carbon-14 is only good for so many years, and yet that's considered a foolproof method by a lot of people. You got Grand Canyon layers that he talked about, and uh, the sediment and the erosionary rates of that, that they measure, assuming they're always the same. You got soft tissue and dinosaur bones. Uh, soft tissue can't last for billions and billions of years. You have DNA coding, and if there's a code, there's a code writer. You have intelligent design, and finally you've got Jesus Christ. And one by one. Piece by piece, he just takes a board at a time, a piece of wood at a time, out of the structure. And by the time I got through with last weekend, and by the time I got through with the book that we read, and the book that many of you guys were able to read, and just these planks were taken out of the structure, I found myself feeling sorry for the secularist. Because there's absolutely nothing left to stand on the whole thing (laughs) collapses be sure to give me that piece of block before we leave here that's what happens i don't know if you noticed it last week but that's what happened last week in stone seal community church we're in renewal we're in revival god is at work in this body of people giving a vision for the future and hope for tomorrow that that we can position ourselves to face the isms and ideologies and the errant viewpoints. Just this week, a guy told me, he said, for 25 years I've struggled with issues raised in high school biology and college biology, and no one ever really satisfactorily answering these questions. He said, I came out of last weekend with 25 years of accumulated questions and, and, and issues and, 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 and challenge points in my faith. And he said, it's just like, it was amazing how God just opened it up for me. 25 years I've been waiting for a weekend like that. You know, I think about this. I think about maybe that's your life. Russ was playing spiritual jingo with us. One by one, plank by plank, and the whole thing collapses. And maybe that's your life. Maybe that's my life. In fact, according to the Bible, it's all of our lives. We build our lives on these complex structures of beliefs, assumptions we make, um, beliefs that we carry with us, experiences that we've had growing up with God, the Bible, Jesus, the faith. 
religion, all these different things. We, we kind of roll all those things into the plank of our life. And like Nebuchadnezzar, we want to build something. We want to be significant. We want to have a legacy. We, 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 want to, we want to be that head of gold and forget these empires of silver and bronze and, and iron that's going to come crashing into our world and, and, and transition and, and, and humble our kingdoms and, and transition to a new age, a new idea, a new kingdom. This rock, this rock that wasn't showing up in Nebuchadnezzar's life that just crashes into that statue and it shatters it and it gets bigger and bigger from Daniel 2. And that's the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God comes crashing in and we recognize this is something that I have to seriously consider. It's something that I've got to look at. It's, it's, it's God has made the world. It, it's happened just like he said, this global flood. And there's evidence of the scarring all over the planet so that you wouldn't miss it. You've got Grand Canyons and you've got constellations and you've got Milky Ways. And, and men and women, I'm not just going and hacking at the limbs of a secular, strictly, exclusively scientific worldview. I don't want to just hack at the limbs at it and hack at the limbs at it. I want to go for the root of it. I want to take it out completely at the bottom level of this thing. Last week. We went for the roots, and you made it happen. When you ladies fixed that meal, when you guys set up these tables and chairs, when you, the band flexed with the schedule, morning schedule sanctuary, when the tech team came together and made sure we streamed this, you set up a moment where somebody could say, for 25 years, I've been waiting for answers like that and insights like that to shore up my faith and to lead my family because you served food and you showed up and you set up that could happen don't ever underestimate what you do in this place to create those kind of moments for people it's because of you i don't know i just want to applaud can you guys applaud for just what god did yes that's what God does, and it's, it's what he wants to do in your life. And, and if you've had a life that's just been jingled up, and now it's been all janked up because of life and the world we live in, and, it, and it's total collapse, there's a kingdom of heaven. And Jesus represented that kingdom, and he came offering that kingdom. And he said, if you'll repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. If you'll change your mind about the foundation of your life, if you'll give the biblical worldview a hearing and you'll consider the claims of Jesus and the proposals that the Bible makes about our origins, about where we came from, what went wrong, what God's doing to fix it, and how this all gets resolved eventually, biblical worldview, church, if you'll give some consideration to that, you can rebuild this thing. You can rebuild this thing for the glory of God. And that's, what, that's who we are, folks. That's, that's who we are, church. This is who we are. It's who we want to be. It's, who we're, it's how we, we feel the vision that God has given us to shape us and move us forward and to give all of you good standing and good position before you ever get there. Amen. I've just been rejoicing over it. I've continued to pray for it. And God is just going to do great things through this body. And 2% of the churches only allow that kind of a message we had last week. And only 2% of the churches is he allowed to share the, some of those deep answers to some of our uh, major intellectual challenges to the faith from a scientific standpoint especially only two percent of the churches will allow him in and you're among the two percent you're very special and that's awesome and god is on the move you know when we look at and isaac did such a great job of reading daniel 3 there's really a connection because um, we see a lot of things at work and at play in daniel chapter 3 uh course we're in a series called living in the lion's den the people of god in exile and so daniel gives these incredible instructions for how we are to live in a hostile culture where a biblical worldview especially of creation a lot of other things but a biblical worldview is relegated to the margins and and, and many people in the world want to see it drop out of culture altogether and so here we are, it's a battle of worldviews in the world, and if you stand for God, according to the Bible, you can expect the furnace. It's going to, and maybe it's found you already. 
the furnace that we step into. And the minute we proclaim a biblical worldview, the golden statues of our culture are numerous and they'll come crashing in. It's interesting because men create furnaces based on their worldviews and their idols. And if you don't submit, you get the furnace. Do I know what I'm talking about this morning? Well, you just ask Ask students who enroll and go to a college university and they enroll for their freshman year and they do their biology 101, then some of them astronomy and other things, and they have a question, how do I live as a believer in a society where many of the cultural institutions, especially universities, are hostile to my faith and to the God that I believe in? How do I live in that culture? Or just ask Canadians, what do I do when the government decides to freeze my bank accounts for a, a, a viewpoint that they don't think is an appropriate viewpoint? And if you have any question about what the future could potentially look like, just know you're living in a culture that's post-Christian, it's post-truth. Anything and everything's on the table. Canadians are living it. And if you, if you ever question this, so, so what about the Ukrainian believers? They're in the furnace. A nation's gone rogue, decides to invade and occupy, and we're seeing incredible, incredible acts of courage from the president, Ukrainian president there. I don't need a ride when offered a ride out of the country. I don't need a ride. He said, I need ammunition. In fact, I'm going to arm my citizens. That's why you never give up your Second Amendment. You, you, you never assume that you'll always be in control. The good guys will always rule at the top. You can't make that assumption. Giving the weapons to the citizenry say, and, and encourage them, fight for your country, fight for your life, your freedom, your families. How do you live in the Ukraine for Christ in an event like that? What about, what about parents in a fiery furnace? What do you do when all across the country you see a government that weaponizes its departments against parents who decide that they need to have some input on a curriculum at an educational level, and they are deemed domestic terrorists. In a country where big tech companies censor your viewpoints, if it doesn't toe the party line and the party mark, or maybe freeze your social media accounts for speaking truth or a moral viewpoint that they don't agree with, or internet trolls decide to cancel your business or your life or your reputation or your influence, because you decided that you were going to go with a biblical worldview and you decided you were going to be public with that. They're in the furnace. And you know, I could talk a lot about these things. We could talk a lot, a lot about life in the furnace of loneliness. And some of you maybe walk through divorce and, and there's conflict uh, relationally. There's maybe a rebellious child in your family. There's maybe some abuse there's maybe a diagnosis that you got in the last six months that's not good. Maybe there's anxiety. Maybe, there, maybe there's grief. I don't know if you've ever been in the furnace, but I think if you haven't, you're probably going to be walking in a furnace, and we all are in the furnace. And Daniel says, okay, if you're in the furnace, if you're in a hostile culture, what can you do? How are we to think about these things? And so this whole sermon series, but if I would just review quickly, has been about that. Live your life, stamp your child, draw your line, stand your ground, love your people, face your crises, know your prophecy. And we'll say it more about that in the days ahead. And this morning is trust your Savior. Trust your Savior. Trust the Savior? Yeah, trust your Savior even when you don't know how it's going to turn out. Just like these three Hebrew boys. Rack, Shack, and Benny. We say, well, wait a second, Pastor. I, I thought Daniel's 600 years before the life of Jesus. He was. Well, how can you say trust the Savior? How can you make that proposal this morning in an Old Testament book like Daniel? What, what's going on? Well, there's a fourth man in the fire. There's a fourth man in the furnace. And, we, and Isaac did a good job of reading that to us. And, 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 and there's this guy in the this being in the old testament that makes these appearances like these guest appearances scattered throughout the old testament um there he's known as the angel or the angel of the lord and he makes an appearance right here in daniel chapter three 
And so he shows up, and theologians call these a, a theophanies, or, or in this case, a Christophany, where he shows up, and, and God does some incredible things. He shows up in just the right moment to show that he's protecting and guarding and watching over his people. In fact, if we just go to slide number 20, verse 16, we'll just pick it up about midway through. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego on the slide replied to him, that is King Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. As though, it's, it's as if they're saying, you know what? You may think you are exalted, Nebuchadnezzar. You may think you're going to make, turn that head of gold into a full statue of gold. You're going to forget about these other kingdoms, about this uncut stone of Daniel that comes crashing in and holds everybody accountable. You, you, you may think that you're exalted, that you're going to defy the decree of God that God gives you through the prophet Daniel. You may think that you have the power over life and death, but you're still just a man. And this Woodstock event you got on the plain of Dur, Durham, the, this Tower of Babel event that you're trying to duplicate here, doesn't change the fact that God is still in control. He's still sovereign. In other words, we see these Hebrew boys, you can just see it. We don't need to think about what we did. We don't need to think about why we did it. Nebuchadnezzar, we don't need a second chance. And it's interesting because you see Nebuchadnezzar, he comes with all these sorts of arguments. What kind of God would ever make you do this? And if your God is so great, why am I about to execute you? And what kind of God is going to save you on a day like today? And, and yet we see these guys with such composure and they show the king the opposite of what he's showing to them. You know, he's angry. He's frothing at the mouth. He's upset. They're calm. They're respectful. They won't budge. They won't bow. They won't bend. And they won't burn. These were guys of conviction. And they're respectful. But they know that all the little decisions in life have prepared them for this one big decision when they have a decision to make. They're going to have to trust their God even though, when they don't, even though they don't know the outcome of what's going to happen. So we see this, it, verse 17, slide 21. We, we read the words, If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to deliver us from it, and he will deliver us from your majesty's hand. We see in verse 18, But even if he does not, we want you to know your majesty that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold that you have set up. But if not, famous words, famous phrase, if he does, if he can, he can deliver, he's sovereign, he's powerful, but if he chooses not to, we're not going to bow to this empty, vain idol that you set up basically to try to establish your legacy, buck the decree of God from Daniel 2, and to show everybody how important you are. We're going to serve God just because. And I was thinking about that as I was studying on that this week and trying to figure out exactly what was the dynamic going on underneath that phrase because it's such a courageous thing for them to say. And I was thinking, you know, when you look at this, I think all of us want to be loved for ourselves, right? You hope when someone loves you that they will love you for you. And that's what you hope. Um, that they love you for you. That they love you not for your money. They love you for you. Or they love you not because of your looks. They love you for you. They love you not because of what you do for a cause maybe they believe in or a cultural issue you feel passionate about and they support that. No, no, you want someone to love you because they love you. Right? And as time goes on, by the way, your money may fade, your looks may fade, support may go away, but you want to be loved for yourself. And everything I see in the Bible, and I see it here in this passage so clearly, and everything I see in the Bible 
is that God feels the same way. This amazing being known as God, he spun all of us into existence. He's given us gifts to enjoy. There's a presence and a power that's intriguing about him. He's great shining light and Shekinah glory. He's a being with a mind as great as God that can spin out, spin out seemingly infinite space, iridescent life. He can consume all. And what these guys are saying, this Shaq, uh, Rack and Benny, what they're saying is, you know what? Nebuchadnezzar, this comical Woodstock event you got going, it's not going to change what we think of God. It's not going to change what our worldview is of God and who shapes that worldview in our life. We don't serve God because it pays well all the time. We serve him because of who he is, and we love him because of who he is. So you know what? He's powerful. He's awesome, and he can deliver us. But if he chooses not to, we love him just because. And this furnace is not going to impact what we do with God, and we're not going to let some tyrannical leader in the desert try to convince us that God isn't good or he isn't who he said he is because some tyrannical leader on an ego trip in the desert is going to threaten to incinerate us if we refuse to bow the knee. See, these boys weren't running around telling everybody it's health and wealth and it's make me rich and all the prosperity theology stuff. You know, come to church, you get the house, you get the car, you get all the things you've ever wanted. See, God wants to know what you're going to do with him if he doesn't give you what you want. He wants to know that. And these guys are saying we trust God, period. Not plus, God plus this, God plus this, God plus this. They're saying we love God, period, just because of who he is, just because of the world he's made, just because of the being that he is and the word he's given, the life he's graciously shared. We love God just because. Question, do you love him that way? Do you love him when he doesn't pay well? When the furnace is there and it looks like that's going to be your fate? See, these guys are showing us something. They're showing us that we're gonna, they're going to serve God. He's sovereign. He's great. But even if he doesn't pull through and deliver from the fiery furnace, they're going to keep loving and serving him. You know, one pastor suggested that that we may only experience the fullness of Jesus' presence after we go public with our faith. It's like we have to go public, just like Romans says, confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord. Believe that God raised him from the dead. You'll be saved. And so when we make that declaration, it's like the fullness of his presence. We meet him because we make that declaration in a culture that doesn't like to hear biblical worldview beliefs and foundations, and when you make that, that public record, it sets you up to be exposed to the furnaces of culture. And Jesus meets us in those furnaces in ways that he doesn't meet and get to know us any other way. He meets us in the fire. He's the fourth man in the fire. And so we ask, you know, we think, well, why didn't God just save Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego by reaching down and pulling them up out of this whole situation Superman style? I mean, why wait until they even get in the furnace? Just, just ride in, ride in and deliver and, and, and be awesome in that deliverance. Why did, why did Jesus, a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus, why did he walk into that furnace? Why did he walk around in the furnace? Because he wants us to know that God does not always rescue by just reaching down and pulling us out. Sometimes he walks in. And Jesus Christ is the only God who goes objectively into the ultimate furnace. And no other God and no other religion talks about a God that suffers like Christianity does. It's a God who is not off in an ivory tower, but he walks into our suffering. And if we are moved by that, and if we've been changed by the fact that Jesus was thrown in the ultimate furnace for us, then wherever we are in a culture, whatever furnace we're in, we know that that's where he shows up. That's 
he reveals himself in times like that. If we go to slide 23, then Nebuchadnezzar was furious with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. His attitude toward them changed. Slide 46 real quick. 46, he ordered the furnace. That's the best picture I could find to show this, okay? Uh, just, just bear with me, all right? He ordered the furnace heated seven times hotter than usual. Now, now forget about the slow roast method. He's going, to, he's going for instant incineration for these guys. 18, 1900 degrees. Verse 20, slide 25. He commanded some of the strongest soldiers in his army to tie up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and throw them into the blazing furnace. Verse 21, so these men, they came ready for this grand occasion in the desert, right? Wearing their robes and trousers and turbans and other clothes. They were bound and thrown into the blazing furnace. So they're, they're all dressed up and they're ready. They weren't going to insult the occasion by coming underdressed. They were all fully dressed and ready. All that they could do, they were trying to do, but they could not bow. Verse 22, the king's command was so urgent. And the furnace so hot that the flames of the fire killed the soldiers. Now that little detail right there tells you what an impossible situation this really was. If the soldiers that throw you into the furnace can't survive, what chance do you think these three guys had in the middle of the thing? These, these soldiers... The fire killed the soldiers, verse 22, who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And all that Nebuchadnezzar cares about is that these men bow down or that they die. He could care less about these guys that lost their lives. Verse 23, and these three men firmly tied fell into the blazing furnace. They should have immediately ignited I mean, it should have just been a few seconds of writhing on the bed of white-hot coals in that furnace. It was more than likely a smelting furnace. It could melt incredibly hard substances down to liquid, liquefy those even. These guys should have been incinerated in a matter of seconds. They don't know who they're dealing with here. Verse 24, slide 30. King Nebuchadnezzar leaped to his feet in amazement. He asked his advisors, weren't there three men that we tied up and threw into the fire? I mean, he went back to elementary school mathematics, right? He's trying to figure this out. Okay, Shadrach, one, right? Meshach, two. Abednego, three. One, two, three. Did you boys see anybody? No, we didn't. Did you boys? No, we didn't. There's three guys that we put in the furnace bound. And he said, look, verse 25. Look, slide number 47. Look, look, I see four men walking around in the fire. Four men unbound and unharmed. And the fourth looks like the son of the gods. It's a shouting spell. Wow. God. He's showing up. You know, in the Old Testament uh, and the New Testament, you have angels, right? But in the Old Testament especially, there are angels and there are the, there's the angel of the Lord. It's a particular figure that keeps showing up in the Old Testament. And so there's angels and there's the angel of the Lord and it's God in visible form. It's, it's God coming down in a pre-incarnate manifestation of Jesus himself. Many scholars argue this. It's a Christophany where a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus, he takes on human form. Even though he's not human, he shows up in just the nick of time or at a, at a, a significant moment. He does this in Genesis 18 with Abraham right before the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. He does this in Genesis 32 when he wrestles with Jacob by the brook. And for those who know their Old Testament, this strange angel keeps showing up. Genesis 16 with Hagar. Genesis 22 with, again with Abraham at Mount Moriah. 
Exodus 3, Moses in the burning bush. Exodus 23, leading children of Israel through the desert. Joshua 5, and and Joshua fighting his battles. Judges 6 with Gideon. Judges 13 with Samson's parents. 2 Samuel 24. And they're like, there he is again. People who know the Old Testament, there he is again. There he is again. There he is again and again and again. And here he is again. He shows up in the fiery furnace. One of his sermons, Spurgeon says, he notes, he points out the fact that they are walking in the furnace. Walking is a symbol of joy, he says. Spurgeon says, of ease, of peace, of rest. He says, they're not flitting like unquiet ghosts as if they were disembodied spirits traversing the flame no no he says they're walking with real footsteps they're treading on hot coals as though they were roses and they're smelling the sulfurous flames as though they yielded nothing but aromatic aromatic perfume only Spurgeon you know if you're barefoot I remember our home we had a floor furnace and anybody know what a floor furnace is? Yeah, so you got a really hot steel grate in the middle of the dining room. And as a kid, you know, you get in a big hurry, you run through the house, and you forget that's not there. And you're going barefooted, and your, fur- your foot comes down on that furnace. What do you think I did when that happened? Yeah, I jumped about as high as I could jump, and I got to dress my wounds for the rest of the day. Little, I had little grate marks on my foot. You could just see, play tic-tac-toe on my foot if you wanted to. Well, these guys aren't doing that in the furnace. They're walking casually. The body language says, I don't feel a thing. They're walking around like it's a palace, not a furnace. And I think they're having a conversation in my imagination. They're having a conversation with the fourth man in the fire, a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus. Jesus steps into that thing. On the left side is kind of the distant view, and we zoom up on the right side. Jesus steps into that thing. You know, you boys know that, that uncut stone from Daniel 2. You know that, that uncut stone that comes and crashes the kingdoms of mankind. You know that stone? You know that king that comes in, the king grows, the kingdom gets bigger and bigger and bigger. You know that from Daniel 2. You're looking at him. You're looking at the king. And I want to tell you boys, I'm glad what you're doing down here in Babylon. I see it. I've watched every minute of your life here in exile. Life in the margins, living in the lion's den. I've watched it. I'm watching you boys, and I appreciate the, what you're, the stand you're taking. I appreciate what you're fighting for, the worldview you're contending for. I appreciate your loyalty to me. And even though Nebuchadnezzar has conscripted this loyalty test empire-wide, you guys had the gumption to stand and stand firm because of your loyalty to me. I see your boys. You keep up the good work, and I'm going to tell you someday. About 600 years, there's going to be a little baby crying in a little stable of Bethlehem. I'm not going to be a pre-incarnate anymore. I'm going to become one of you. And I'm going to step into the furnace of this life. And I'm going to do something that only, well, not what Nebuchadnezzar says, what only this most high God can do. I'm going to save the world. Verse 26 Slide 32, Nebuchadnezzar then approached the opening of the blazing furnace and he shouted, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out, come here, he says. You know, I'm not sure, but I think if it was me, I'd have said, "Uh, you come in and get me. Nabu, Shnabu, come on in. Help yourself, brother. Just pull up a lawn chair and get your lemonade and have a seat. We're having a good time. We don't want to come out of here. No. These guys, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, came out of the fire. Three went in. There's four in there. And three came out. 
And Adrian Rogers says, Jesus Christ is still in the fire. He's been in the fire. He's there. And that's where you'll find him in ways and get to know him in ways you'll never get to know him any other way. Rogers says, don't be afraid. Are you in a furnace this morning? Your life looked like this Jenga tower. Have you built on something that's shady, that's weak, that can't stand the test of data and time? Well, this morning, the fourth man in the fire still lives, and he's not just a pre-incarnate, holographic-type, aberrant vision that shows up and disappears. No, no, he has come. He's put his feet on the ground. He has rescued this thing called planet Earth. He has saved us. He has rescued you. He's invited you into a victory, into a kingdom. And if you'll but yet, if you'll but just reach out your hand, allow him to take you by the hand, he'll put your life back together, rebuild your structures of life, and give you hope for a future. Listen, verse 27, the satraps per prefects, governors, and royal advisors crowded around them. They saw that the fire had not harmed their bodies, nor was a hair of their heads singed. Their robes were not scorched, and there was no smell of fire on them. Only one thing was changed. They're no longer bound. God let them get falsely accused. You've been falsely accused. Have you stepped into the furnace? Somebody tried to take you to court, getting legal with you? A lot of furnaces out there. These guys, God let them get falsely accused. God let them feel the anger of an infuriated king. He let them get tied up. He let the soldiers turn the furnace into a raging inferno. He let them fall into the furnace. Eyes are tightly shut, heads turned away. Cannot believe what's going to happen the next two seconds expecting to burst into horrifying flames. God didn't even eliminate the fire. He just said, I'll do you one better, boys. How about if I join you? You three Hebrew boys who know who you are, living up to your name, and refusing to bow the knee in a culture that insists on canceling you if you have the audacity to tweet, post, share, or proclaim that there is a God and he made everything. There has been a global flood. And he, and he has sent us, not only did he send an ark, but he sent us a new ark, a new mode of rescue and safety. It's called Jesus and the body of Christ. One author put it like this way. Put it like this. God is not at work in your life creating circumstances that you want. He is at work in your circumstances, creating in you what he wants. Are you in the furnace? That's why I can tell you, and only Jesus can do this. He said, look, I see four men walking around in the fire, unbound and unharmed. It was the furnace that God used to burn off the bindings, to burn off the addictions, to burn off the things that bind and that constrict and that keep you from being all that God has called you to be, the furnace will do that if you'll just but let him and let Jesus take you into the fire. You know, Nebuchadnezzar said, praise be to the God, verse 28. Notice he never says, my God. He's an unconverted believer. Do I talk to an unconverted believer this morning? Praise be to the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, he's not my God, who has sent his angel and rescued his servants. They trusted in him and defied the king's command and were willing to give up their lives and rather than serve or worship any God except their own, God, have you put on the uniform this morning or are you lurking in the shadows? I'll privatize my faith and I'll just keep quiet. I don't want anybody to really know how I feel about these things. Is he the God or is he my God? See, these boys put the uniform on. Can I challenge you, church? It's time to put the uniform on. Put it on. And when you do, you'll meet Jesus in the furnace because you're going there. The culture will insist that you go there. But when you do, the smartest decision they made 
you always see the three of them together. We're together. You and I are together. And when the big decisions come, it's much easier to do it if you're paired up with a church family. These guys were smart that way. They knew they had to stay together and hold together. And they knew the furnace was coming. And they knew what their position was going to be on this. And therefore, verse 29, Therefore I decree that the people of any nation or language who say anything against the God, not my God, the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, be cut into pieces and their houses be turned into piles of rubble, for no other God can save in this way. No other God can save in this way. No other God can manifest himself in human form and do what this God has done and I've seen today. A fourth man in the fire. And I notice he never asked for the fourth guy to come out, did he? He's not sure he's ready to meet that guy. What about you? You ready? What if what's happening in Europe, happening in our world, what if it is setting the stage for the great glorious daybreak the prophets sang about, the psalmist wrote about, the New Testament writers encouraged us to anticipate? What if? It's the beginning of a setting of a stage when the kingdom of uncut Daniel Stone, an uncut kingdom, Daniel 2, breaks in on our age and does his thing in our world. Are you ready to meet him? Then the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the province of Babylon. The tables were turned. God did an incredible miracle that day. You know, it was May of 1940, World War II. The Allied French and British forces were backed into a corner, badly defeated by the German Nazi army, and the Battle of France was raging, and about 350,000 men were pinned and that much of the British army were backed up against the sea at the port of Dunkirk on the coast of France back in May of 1940. And they're sitting ducks. Their days were numbered. All the Nazis have to do is go airborne, bomb them, shoot them. Uh, 350,000 men, it's far too many to evacuate by sea. The Germans are going to take advantage and the British commander at Dunkirk doesn't know what else to do for his men. And he sends this cryptic three-word message to the people of England. Three words. But if not. The people back then were still somewhat familiar with the biblical worldview and they knew exactly what he was talking about. They knew it, it harkened back to these three Hebrew boys in the book of Daniel who refused to bow to King Nebuchadnezzar's image. The God we serve is able to save us, but if not, we will not bow. And it was a message of courage to those in England to do something, to pray. It was a message of defiance against the Germans. It was cryptic to try to keep them from guessing what they were asking for and what they needed. They didn't know what to do. There's 350,000 of them. This guy cables back, but if not. And somehow the people of England responded and the forecast changed. And so the, the German planes were grounded and, and, and nearly 800 fishing boats and yachts and merchant vessels and just civilian ships began to make their way, risky, risky journey across the water and the bay. And they began to pick these boys up and take them back to safety for nine or ten long days. They hustled these boys back to safety. And to this day, it's called the miracle at Dunkirk. But if not, we will fight to the finish. And if God delivers us, great. But if he doesn't, we love who he is anyway. We're going to serve him anyway, just because of who he is. 
This morning, you may feel like your situation's impossible. You're coming up against these big, huge, secular worldview ideas in your world. That's trying to give you alternatives to your origins. It's trying to give you alternatives for what to live for. The gods to live for. The golden images of life to live for. You may be coming up against these. You may be in your furnace this morning. But in this, there is a God, a fourth man who is revealed. And he extends to you an opportunity, an invitation. You know, Daniel says in another place, Daniel 2, he talks about there is a God in heaven. And even though you may feel impossible, I mean, he had to interpret this guy's. He had to tell what he dreamed and he had to interpret the dream, right? And so this was impossible, but there is a God in heaven, Daniel says. And you may be burdened by sin or sickness. There's a God in heaven this morning. You may see no way to improve your dead-end marriage. There's a God in heaven this morning, your dead-end job, your dead-end life. There's a God in heaven this morning. There's a fourth man in the fire. And they did not bend, they did not bow, and they did not burn. And God showed up. And maybe he needs to show up in your life this morning. Nebuchadnezzar says it this way, and we'll wrap it up with this. No other God can save in this way. What way? Showing up as a man. People say, well, I can't believe Christianity because of all the furnaces. And I can't believe in Christianity because of all the suffering. And I can't believe in Christianity because of this and that. And okay, fine, the furnaces are going to come. We know that. You're going to run into furnaces in your life. You cannot avoid them. The question that I've got is who will go into the fire with you? What kind of God will go with you into the fire and love you and stay with you through all of it. And this is the kind of God that Nebuchadnezzar was intrigued by. This morning, if you, if you die, you wake up in the arms of the Savior. There's freedom and liberation and joy. You're always safe. And we actually believe our God is going to deliver us. But if not, we can truly say with these guys, we don't care. We're not going to bow down to your image because God is good. I will always believe that. And I will worship him because he's good, not just because he pays well. And they were spiritually fireproofed before they were ever physically fireproofed. And the question I'll leave you with this morning is, if you need a companion you can trust in a hostile culture, can I offer to you the Savior, the fourth man in the fire? Trust your Savior, even when you don't know how it's going to turn out. Will you pray with me? Father, thank you so much this morning for your work in our hearts and lives. And we are so thankful for this group of simple believers and what you're doing in their hearts and through them. And uh, I know that there's a furnace blazing all around. You've been so faithful to deliver them so many times. And Father, if they've had a collision course with the kingdom of God, that Father, that as they encounter Jesus and his kingdom and his power, I just pray that you would meet them where they are this morning and and you would open up their hearts and that somehow you could give hope and security and peace and that you would uh, enable us to rest easy and to have calm and to enjoy this thing we call life because you're with us. You're walking, you're watching our journeys and you're delivering us and we thank you for that. You showed up for them. Could I ask this morning that you would show up for these that are here Show up for them, encourage them, strengthen them. For I believe they want to put the uniform on. I believe they want to live not obnoxiously and not uh, rudely, but they want to live in the world with a sense of resolve and a boldness that says, no, no, there is a creator. He has shown himself and he's come in Jesus. And I'm going to live for him. I'm going to honor what he says about family and marriage. I'm going to honor what he says about life and hope. I'm going to honor what he says about life after death. 
I'm going to honor him and live for him. I believe there's people here who want to wear that uniform. So I just pray you give them wisdom, insight, courage to wear that uniform. The God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and of Daniel, thank you this morning. And we will always give you praise for your great grace in our time of need. In your name, amen. Will you stand with me this morning? You've been a great group. Uh, I want you to go in his, in his grace and peace today and greet your uh, neighbors in Christ. All right? Praise God. He loves you. And you be sure to be a conduit of that this week. Have a great week. You're dismissed. <laughs>